Today's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of God. For the past few months, we've been looking at a survey of the Bible, the whole of the Bible, and we looked at a lot of themes. And uh, we, the last week or so, we've been looking at parables. And what are parables? Parables are stories with an ironic twist that shock the listener. In fact, the ironic twists are intended to shock the listener with truths that are just as applicable today as they were to the listener back then in Jesus' time. And so we're going to get right into it today. We're going to learn three things about today's parable that we're looking at. The gospel, it's always going to teach us about the gospel. The gospel is about having identity, having freedom, having power. Identity, freedom, and power. That's what the gospel brings us. First, we're going to look at identity. Let's look at this parable in verses 19 to 22. Uh, the beginning of the parable, we're introduced to two characters. And if, if you've ever been in the church for a decent amount of time, you've heard this story at some point. If you've never been inside the church before, there are some themes and elements of this passage that are a bit shocking, and that's the intent of the parable. We're introduced to two characters. They're very, very different from each other. In fact, they're polar opposites. One is rich. The other, uh, one was uh, royalty. The other is, is poor. He's a beggar. One was covered in linens and lived in royalty, purple. The other was covered in sores and was surrounded by dogs. One is feasting. The other is longing to eat the crumbs from that rich man's table. The rich man had a funeral. The poor man, there's no reference that uh, he had a funeral, most likely because he was so poor, he died on the street. What's the real difference here? And if you look at it, it's, it stands out to you. The rich man doesn't have a name, but the poor man has a name. And that's definitely not a coincidence. There are dozens of parables in all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, 55, at least 55, are parables. 
uh, uh, parables in the Gospels, at least 31 of these parables were unique. And yet in all of them, the subject of the parable never has a name. You think about the most well-known parables. None of those parables, the subject, the main, the primary subject has a name. There's always a rich man, or a father, or a mother, or a woman, or a man, or there was a certain person, a son, a daughter, a farmer, a sower, except in this parable. In this parable, this poor man is given a proper name, Lazarus. Lazarus means God is my help, or God is my Savior. God is all I have. Lazarus, this poor man, has a name. In verse 25, from heaven, Abraham says to this rich man, the text says that he's in torment. He says to the rich man, in your lifetime, you received your good things. In other words, what he's saying is, all the good things that you could have ever enjoyed, you already did. You wasted your life. The difference between the two people in this passage boils down to this. What is their help? What is their savior? What is their all in all? Lazarus, look at Lazarus. He's poor, no clothing. He's, he's, uh, he's hungry, he's forgotten. Never even given a proper burial. But God is my help. God is the sum of all of my worth. God is the only thing that I have, the only good thing that I have in my life. God is all I need. The rich man, what are the good things? He's wealthy. He's got his riches. He's got fine clothing. He's got status. He's satisfied. But this rich man, because of all these things, because of his wealth, because of his status, he's self-deceived. The rich man sits in his bed, lies on his bed and says, Ah, this is all I need. I have everything I need. But he doesn't have a name. He's not known by God. Because really, the sum of his worth is what he's wearing. The sum of all of his worth is who he's surrounded by. The sum of all his worth is the money, the bank account, the treasure that he has, the physical treasure. So once he dies, his wealth is gone. His status is gone. He's completely lost. He's lost himself. He's lost his name. And this passage teaches that, I mean, certainly we know that the rich man, if he did exist, had to have had a name. And what Jesus is saying, I don't care. I didn't know you. I didn't know him. To me, he doesn't have an identity. Anything apart from our relationship with Christ, if that thing becomes our identity, if that thing becomes our name, Right? If that thing becomes a sum of what we build our status on, that's all that we are. So we don't have a real name. We don't have a real identity. We're just a rich man. Or you're just a, a good-looking person. Or you're just an intelligent person, a person with a great pedigree. That's all you are. And when you take away those things, if you lose your job, if you end up leaving, uh, you know, cutting your, your degree program short, anything like that, if you build your life on, on your marriage or on your spouse— and you lose your spouse. God forbid you lose your spouse. But if you lose your spouse, what happens? You've lost your name. You've lost yourself. No identity. Nothing left. Take a person incredibly attractive. That person has a power to attract other people to them. 
Take a wealthy person. That person has the ability, he has buying power. And that buying power doesn't just buy physical material. That buying power buys status. In every one of these cases, you take somebody else, uh, they build their lives on their career. They live for their children. Somebody who's got a wonderful pedigree, an educational pedigree, or somebody who builds their life on everything that their parents have achieved. In every one of these cases, you have to listen carefully to this, what is the emphasis? What is the thing that gives them worth? What is that thing that gives them an identity? That thing, that thing is their help. That thing is their savior. That thing is their foundation. That thing is their functional God. That's what it is. That's what the Bible tells us. How do you know that? When you lose these things, it feels like hell. It feels like you're in torment. When you feel less attractive, when you lose your boyfriend or your girlfriend, when you feel that you have to compare yourself with another person, when you get old because you've built your life on your looks, you get old, you lose your job, something goes wrong with your career, you lose something, God forbid, again, it happens to your children, you disappoint your parents, your reputation gets irreparably damaged, what do you say? I have no more reason to live. My life is over. I have no reason to go on. What you're really saying is, what is there now for me to live for? Because I've lost everything. I've lost my life. There's this passage, if you peruse through the Bible, uh, there's a book called Ruth. It's in the Old Testament. And Ruth, her mother-in-law, lost her husband. And she lost her husband at an age where she can't remarry, essentially. And not only did she lose her husband, she loses both of her sons. And because she loses both of her sons, in the ancient times, you didn't have bank accounts. You had sons. You had children. And your sons were the sum of your wealth because if you had a lot of money, if you had a lot of land, who could take care of their land? Who can manage that land more than your sons? Naomi says, I've lost my husband. I've lost my sons. And so her name, which actually in Hebrew means sweet, she does a play on her name. She says, now you can call me bitter. You can call me Mara because my life has become bitter. I have nothing more to live for. I am in torment. They lost their name. They've lost themselves. They lost their identity. What is a name? To have a name is to know who you are, to know uh, that you are valuable, to know that you have meaning, to know that you have a purpose, to know that you have direction. That's what it actually means, euphemistically, so to speak, uh, to have a name. Malcolm Gladwell who talks about, uh, and actually many uh, social commentators write about this. If you, uh, someone that's close to Philadelphia, you have, um, you have uh, David Brooks, who is an NPR correspondent. He says, if you actually look back at the New York Times in the 1950s, today if you look at the marriage section, they talk about uh, what each person does. So-and-so who is an orthopedic surgeon, who graduated from this med school, who went to this university, who's from this city, marries so-and-so, uh, who is this attorney from this law firm, who went to this law school, who graduated from this university. Today, the New York Times in the marriage section, in our society, in our culture, we look at and define ourselves by what we do, by what we've accomplished. But 50 years ago, 60 years ago, in the 1950s, if you opened up the New York Times and looked at the marriage section, they talk about your name. So-and-so who was the son of so-and-so. You see, married this person who is the daughter of, from this family, you see. 
And so, to have a name is to have an identity. Now you take that, today we focus on what we do as our identity. Back then you focused on your actual name uh, as, as your identity. But to have a name then is to know who you are, to know that you are valuable. This text, this text says that to build your life on God, if God is the source of your identity, then whether you lose, whether you gain, whether you win, whether you lose, you still have a self. You still have a you. You still have an identity. Circumstances don't affect or can't break down who you are, what you value, your direction in life. Lazarus is the perfect example because he had nothing. He has lost everything. He has had nothing on earth, but he had a name. Jesus is saying to us, but he had a name. The only name that matters, the only foundation that he needs is to have an identity founded and built on Jesus. He defined himself as what? God is my helper. God is my help. God is my savior. He didn't have friends. He wasn't famous. He didn't have a family, at least not to, not to our knowledge. There were no groupies around him. He wasn't popular. No parties were thrown uh, in his name. He didn't even have a proper burial. He had no wealth, no career path. This person was not on any fast track towards management. He had no title. He had no food. He was hungry, and when he died, and he went through death, which is the most drastic and tragic change that you could ever experience, but through that poverty and weakness and suffering and death, he was birthed into a new self. That's Lazarus. The rich man, notice, the text says nothing about his moral character. The text says nothing about his morality. The text says nothing about his religiosity. All the text focuses on or subtly shares with us is that this man is not known, not by Jesus. Jesus is not personal to him. He is not personal to Jesus. He is just an empty soul, an empty shell, covered and adorned with worldly wealth and status and fine linens. What does this tell you about the gospel now? Christianity, Christianity, in fact, you don't even see much about Lazarus's character. You don't see much about Lazarus's morality or Lazarus's religiosity. The text says nothing about either men in that regard. Christianity teaches us that it's not about how well you obey. Now, I grew up. That's why passages like this are very important to revisit because I was taught growing up that if you really wanted to be received and accepted and known by God, you had to obey. But the thing is, that's the reason why Jesus came, because we couldn't obey. And so it's actually more important, what? What does the passage focus on here? That it's not about how well you obey, although Christian, Christianity is not less than obedience. It's more about who or what God is to you. Is he your help? And if he is not your help, what is your help resting on? Meaning if you build your life on anything other than your relationship with God, on your career, on your security, on your children, on your relationships, on your talent, on your reputations, on your pride, anything, right now you're young. You can get away with it. I can tell you that as a pastor. Right now you're young, you're healthy, and you feel like I could ride this out for a while. If that's your plan, I'm sure the rich man had a plan see. I'm sure the rich man had a plan. If you build your life on anything other than your relationship with God and something threatens that thing, you will become anxious. If something damages that thing, 
you will become angry. If you lose that thing, you will despair. You have lost your value. You have lost your worth. You have lost yourself. You've lost your identity, your purpose, your meaning to live, your purpose to live. To get the gospel first and foremost is to have an identity. Look at Lazarus. He had nothing. He was suffering. But what sent him to heaven was not his poverty. A lot of us like to believe, well, I think what this passage means is we need to be poor. That's actually not what the passage is focusing on. You see, what sent him to heaven is not his poverty. What sent him to heaven is that he poured out his suffering on God who he trusted would be his help. God was his help, and as a result, he became more of himself. We don't know if that man's name was actually really Lazarus. All we know is that Jesus knew him as Lazarus, one who sees God as his help. And so as a result, Lazarus became more of himself because of who he trusted. Now, you don't do that to become more of a person, right? We look to, uh, to other things to increase our, our identity. Uh, we looked to other things to increase our identity, to increase our options, to increase our potential, to increase our freedom. Lazarus knew exactly who he was, whether he was rich or poor. Where there was a self. There was a core that was not dependent on his status here on earth, and so he had a name. And it became even greater after his death because God, who was the source of his help, source of his identity, God was the source of his options and his potential and his freedom. So when eternity finally overtook Lazarus, he became so full, commentators say, he exploded. He burst into heaven. The rich man, when eternity finally overtook him, emptiness exploded in his life. And so he experienced cosmic bankruptcy. He had nothing in the end. No name, not even a name. So the gospel gives us identity. The second thing the gospel gives us is freedom. Verse 23, in hell... In torment, the rich man looks up. Now, some of us here, uh, many of us here probably believe in hell. There are some of us in here who probably reject the notion of hell. A lot of philosophical reasons why that may be the case, but you have to get this. This passage says, this passage says two remarkable things about hell. First, hell is a fire. Now, what do we mean when we say hell is a fire? Why is fire so often used to describe hell? And it's because fire, uh, if you're a scientist, if you're in the medical industry, if, you, uh, if you've taken biology classes, chemistry classes, you'll know fire consumes. Fire changes the chemical composition of anything that it touches. So when something is in flames, it burns up. It actually doesn't cease to exist. It's still there. It's still something. It, it's just rather the chemical bonds the chemical properties that held that something together have finally broken apart. It's been consumed by that fire, and fire, what fire does is it breaks things down. Things lose. What was once integrated, because the chemical bonds have been broken, it now becomes disintegrated. The properties that once held these things together are now loose, so loose that they've broken apart. Things uh, have become incoherent where there was once coherency, disintegrated where there was integration. That's what a fire does. The Bible says that it's not just hell, it's sin that disintegrates the whole of our being, the whole of our bodies, the whole of our psychologies, our psyches, the whole of our spirit. Now, 
going to pause. You have to think about this. No matter how hard today you try, you may try to escape God. No matter how much you may rebel against God, you're never, it's one of God's common graces to us, you're never completely away from God. God is always present in our world today. We're always, that means, a part of experiencing His grace. It's not like only Christians have sunlight. Everybody here, as a part of God's common grace, experiences the goodness of the world that God gives us and provides us on a daily basis. We're still in His grace. We're still under His patient love. Uh, We're always, in some ways, kept intact. We're decaying. We're decaying. The The moment we're born, we're starting to decay. Uh, But sin also deteriorates. But right now, we're still under his grace. We're still intact. And as long as you're alive, your body and your soul are integrated, right? So you're still able to love, and you're able to think coherently. You're able to create things. You're able to enjoy life. But the Bible says someday, if you continue to run, if you continue to escape, you actually might succeed. You actually, there will come a time when you will actually completely be away. A lot of us here are saying someday. The devil's favorite word is what? Someday. Someday. Right now I'm going to focus on this. Right now I'm going to focus on my career. Right now I'm going to focus on my relationships. Right now I'm going to focus on my children. Right now it's all about my marriage. It's all about building. You're actually running. You're actually running and building your life on something other than your relationship with God. And you're saying, right now, I'm young, I'm beautiful, I have a future. And so, you'll you'll get away with it for now. Because you're actually all a part of God's grace. Common grace to all. That's an invitation for everyone here. You're all a part of God's common grace, an invitation that right now, you can shift that focus and orientation to your relationship with God. Are you known... Can he be your help? Can he be your help? That's what the invitation says. While you're able to think, while you're able to create, while you're able to enjoy, your worldview can actually shift. That's an opportunity. But the Bible says someday if you continue to run, if you continue to try to escape, continue to rebel, you actually may succeed to completely get away from God. Hell is a place after you're dead where people who wanted to get away from God actually get away. That's what hell is. The breakdown that began in your life finally becomes complete and burst into a new form of life in hell. The disintegrating work that began here because of sin, through sin, finally gets birthed and comes full term in hell. Now, I've shared this um, analogy uh, a while back or illustration a while back. Uh, Miele appliances. Some of you might have appliances made by Miele, uh, famous appliance uh, company. Uh, some say their washing machines are the most efficient washing machines in the world. But one of the things that uh, they say in their uh, reports is that most of their customer service calls for Miele, their washing machines, come from the United States. Why? Because American appliances... When you look, uh, when you buy something from, and I don't want, it's not to put the appliance brand down, okay, because I have one of these. If you have something from General Electric, GE, a washing machine there, front loading, 
When you put your clothes in there and you throw the soap in there or in that little compartment, close the door, press the buttons, and it turns on, it starts to spin. Water starts shooting out. You see the soap and the action at work. You see the suds crashing against the, eh, they're like small waves, right? They go up against the window and you know, oh, it's working. But the thing is, meal appliances are so efficient, you don't see any of that. So you can't tell when you're looking in there. It's spinning, but are my clothes actually cleaning up? Are they actually getting cleaned? You can't tell. So uh, what they say is that uh, most of their customer service calls come from the United States. Uh, The reason why and what they're trained to do, especially if you're from the United States, they say, did you look at the English translation of the manual? What's a manual? A manual is full of directions instructions, how to operate something according to the design. That's what a manual does. Don't do this or it's going to blow out. You got to do this to take care of it, right? That's what a manual is, right? Uh, if you don't, don't do this or there's going to be pain, there's going to be danger, it's going to break down. When you buy a product, uh, what does it say? Does it say, uh, what do you say? You know, you get this product, you open up the manual, you look at it, and you say, okay, well, it says that this is how you take care of the appliance. And you say, wait a second, what does Mila think they are? Who do, who do they think they are? Who do the executives at Bose think they are? Who do the, uh, the, the engineers at Samsung think they are or BMW think they are telling me how to run my life? Is that what you say when you open up a manual? No, what you do is you read it. Uh, actually, wives tend to read it. Husbands tend to just try to tinker around, and then, and then they take it to the shop. That's what happens, right? But uh, wh- what they do is uh, they want to read it. You carefully read it, especially because you've invested a lot into these things. Because you know that these instructions all correspond to the design of the maker. It's from the maker. To violate those instructions, to violate those directions, is to violate your design. It's going to lead to breakdown. You want a quick, fast track to breakdown and disintegration? Disobey the manual. Violate the manual. That's what you do. Now, think about this. The more self-centered you are, the more proud you are, your life starts to break down. That disintegration is already happening. It begins with relationships. But it actually takes a toll on your soul and your spirit, your psyche, And uh, depending on what you do in those pivotal moments, you either become more self-centered or you become humbled, less self-centered. You become more proud, more humble. Your life could easily start to break down. And that spin starts to increase. The more you center on yourself, it gets harder to love other people. You become hardened. As you get older, you become hardened. Uh, It gets harder to think for other people. The Bible says after a while, you become what the Bible calls a scoffer. That, what, you know what a scoffer is? A scoffer is uh, because everything's revolving around you. Everything's revolving around your, your family. Everything revolves around your ideals and your principles and your values, what you treasure. So after a while, you scoff at what other people treasure. You scoff at how other people live. They could be living very well. You scoff at them. They could be living poorly. You scoff at them. They could be buying some things that you could care less for, so you scoff at them. They could discover things, you scoff at them. You see, that's what a scoffer is. Now think about this. Think about what self-righteousness does. Your wisdom, you know, uh, uh, your own personal righteousness in your wisdom. Years and years of even living right, living a good life. 
Years and years of craving the approval of other people. Years and years of just pouring into other things that won't give you life. But only because maybe it's duty. Maybe it's because you genuinely love those things. You treasure these things. Whatever the reasons are. Right? Think about this. After a while, it's almost instinctive to become that way. It's like an addiction. It becomes an instinct right, to be able to respond, react, or to uh, behave a certain way. And uh, when there's uh, the possibility for error, it gets called out to you, right? What do you do? You immediately blame other people, or you immediately blame your circumstances, or you kind of share about, well, you know, this is right now, in this moment, this is where I am. This is, I have to focus on this. That's what we say, right? Um, And uh, uh, it's easy to blame other people or circumstances. Um, It's what commentators uh, often call a majestic self-pity. Nobody understands my life. Nobody understands what I go through. Nobody understands the pressures of what I experience. I have nobody in my corner. That's hell. That's how it begins. So I don't know if you believe in it or not. If that's your life, you're living it. You see, that's the beginning of the breakdown. And in hell, what it is is that self-pity gets full-blown. That self-centeredness gets full-blown. It's now unbridled. That self-righteousness, full-blown, unbridled, untamed. No inhibitions left. Fully born, full term. It becomes like a wildfire. That's why hell is a fire, you see. Completely consumes you. Today, you're blind to some of these things. No way that everybody here is privy to all of their flaws. You're blind to some of these things. There are people around you who are close to you who probably see it. And they're trying to figure out a way to address it. Maybe they're too afraid. In time, what's going to happen is you're going to be trapped in these things. And the more proud you get, the more self-righteous you get, the more self-centered you get, You become even more sure that it's somebody else's fault. You become even more sure that it's the circumstances. And so in this text, I'm going to bring us back to this text, there are three things that this rich man says. The first thing the rich man says, he says it to Abraham. He says in verse 24, send Lazarus to dip his finger in the water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony. That's what he says. What he's really saying is this. Listen, I'm disintegrating. I'm falling apart here right? And notice, he's not even speaking to God. He's too proud to speak to God. He speaks to Abraham, God's servant, in a sense. And uh, because this is a job for a servant. This is a job for a slave. And that's the rich man's view. Even in hell, the rich man's view of Abraham and Lazarus is what? They are servants. Why? Because on earth, the rich man used to be on top. Lazarus was on the bottom. He still thinks he's wiser. He still thinks he's more mature. He still thinks he has more power. He still thinks he has more authority. He still thinks he's on top. He doesn't realize that in his life, upon his death, a sudden reversal of fortune has taken place. And that's the surprising ironic twist, right? The rich man's now at the bottom. The Lazarus, Lazarus is now at the top. And yet the rich man doesn't get it. So what does he do? He's ordering Abraham around. He's still ordering Lazarus around as if he's on top, as if he has that right. He's still clinging to his status. That's the self-centeredness. That's the greed. Full-blown. 
he still thinks he has authority. So he's clinging to his authority. He's clinging to his status. He's clinging to his wealth, his glory years, so to speak. This is who I was. This is who I am. I'm still on top. He's blind to his condition. He's blind to his need. So he's blinded by his status so much that even as that's birthed into his new life in hell, he's blind, completely blinded by self-centeredness. The second thing that happens that he says, uh, verse 27, send Lazarus to warn my brothers. I have brothers, basically what he's saying is, and at the least, they need a proper warning. What's he implying? What's he implying here? I never got a proper warning before. So, So the least you can do, you owe me. They can have a proper warning. What's he doing? He's still blaming others. He's still making excuses. He's still justifying himself. He's still pitying himself. What's the third thing he says? He asks Lazarus to come and comfort him, but he never, the third thing, I guess it's what he doesn't say, he never asks to get out. He never asks for forgiveness. He's so self-justifying, so self-righteous, so blind, he never sees the real problem of his sin. He never sees them. Because he doesn't see the real problem of his sin, he doesn't see the real solution. He just wants relief. He notices that he's disintegrating. He notices that he's in agony. He just wants comfort. And this is something about hell. Hell is a place where people chose to be. People choose to be in hell. Hell is nothing more than what you naturally asked for in the first place. Hell is always something you choose. Notice the rich man, he says, I'm suffering. See my condition, I'm suffering. He definitely knows his condition. But he never says, how do I get out? How do I leave? What must I do? What must I say? What must I be? There must be something wrong with me here. I need to get out of here. And that teaches us two things. One, look at our pride. Look at our jealousy. Look at your envy. It begins with subtle comparisons. Over the years, it gets worse. The worsening continues as C.S. Lewis, uh, he says, uh, it continues into eternity until it becomes exactly what Jesus Christ describes or envisions hell to be. So it begins with anger and complaining. Hell begins with a grumble. Hell begins with irritations and criticisms. Eventually, you can't stop. You're always complaining. You're always blaming other people. You're even self-critical. You're beating yourself up. C.S. Lewis says, eventually, you become the grumble. That's hell. This is why hell's a fire. You're completely consumed. The composition of your soul has become disintegrated. It changes, disintegrated, incoherent. That's hell. You're addicted to pleasure and power and pride. And you do that for 80 years, just 80 years, 80 small, short years. Now, that's a little bit of disintegration there. But now think about that onto eternity. Completely consumed. That's us. The second thing this text tells us about hell is that hell is isolation. Verse 24, the rich man, he's in agony. He's begging for relief. He sees Abraham. He sees Lazarus. And Abraham says this, verse 25 to 26, I can't. I can't help you. 
And why? There's this chasm. It's too distant. You're too far away. I can't cross over. The more self-centered, self-absorbed, self-righteous, self-pity, blaming of other people, eventually there's no one left around. You've lost everyone and everything in your life. You're completely alone. That's hell. And so the result is, hell was not, is not what you used to think hell used, was. You know, uh, growing up, I thought hell was this place. You die and like, someone like, undoes this vault. And, and like those cartoons, right? You undo the vault and fire bursts out like Old Faithful, like a big geyser. And then like, you're like, oh. And then you know, these people who are chained, they're like, like, grabbing onto whatever they can grab onto. And eventually, you know, the guy in the hood, everyone knows the guy in the hood, right? He comes over and rips them away and, and throws them in. And, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, those cartoons, like they're going down the well, oh, right? And then the, you lock the vault and there's this voice that, <laughs> right? That's what I used to think what uh, hell used to be, right? Hell's not that. You're not thrown into hell. You choose it. You have to choose it. No one asks in hell, get me out. No one's trying to figure out what it means to get out. No one's even trying to get out because they've chosen it. Lazarus on earth, no options, no freedom, no potential. And he died, and it's in that brokenness, it's through that brokenness and through that, that uh, lostness on earth, through that namelessness on earth, you know, not popular, not approved by anyone. In fact, people probably jeered at him as he walked by because of the smell or because of his poverty. Uh, ignored largely on earth. Through that and through that death, there was an increase in options, increase in potential, increase in, in fact, he experienced his true potential, true freedom, true life. Why? Because he had a name. He was known. He was helped by God. So how are we helped by God? All of you, young, beautiful, potential. Lots of potential here. How do you become Lazarus? The power to get this, rich man says, verse 27 to 28. The rich man says, uh, I know what it's going to take to get out of here, to prevent from getting in here, rather. He says, send Lazarus. Uh, what's the rich man want? If Lazarus shows up, they'll get it. In Abraham, in verses 29 to 31, he says, that's not going to work. Why? Because if you live your life using fear and punishment and guilt, if Lazarus shows up from the dead, it's going to make them scared, yes. It's going it's to uh, scare them into some kind of repentance, it's going to punish them or make them feel guilty in some way. If you beat people into behavioral change, it's going to lead to some kind of outward change in the beginning, but it's not real change. And so Abraham says, even if somebody rises from the dead, why? Because your identity is not going to change through fear. That's not at the crux of the gospel. A lot of us growing up in the churches, we left the churches. Why? Because the churches made us scared. A lot of the lessons that we learned, uh, we learned lessons out of, of fear that beat us into repentance, beat us into change. The rich man says, if somebody were to come from the dead, then they'll get it. But Jesus actually goes so far as saying, no, that's not going to happen. Even
even if somebody rises from the dead, even if they see his hands and his feet, it won't work. They need Moses and the prophets. You need to know why, because Moses and the prophets always explain why. You already have Moses and the prophets, he says. If I rise from the dead and appear, you're going to be scared, but you're not going to change. But if you know why I died, why I rose again from the dead, you will experience a life-changing element of grace that will shape you and birth you into new life. It's love. It's the why. It's love that changes identity. You know why we build our identity on, things that we, on the things that we do, on our work, on our relationships? They're tangible things. You build it on your rights. These are tangible things, especially in our day and age, in our society today, we're all fighting and arguing over rights, right? If you build your life on politics, these are tangible things, accomplishable things, realizable things. And it's because we're looking for acceptance, right? We're looking for love. We're looking for righteousness, to be made right. We're looking for something to justify us, something to justify our lives. And so we want acceptance. We want approval. We want to belong. We want a place. And, uh, and uh, we want uh, to place, what we do is we put cosmic weight, the weight of our soul on these things. You're not going to change because of fear. You're not going to change just through willpower. You can't be manipulated into change. Those kind of things will come at you like a hammer. If somebody rises from the dead and you just see them, oh, you're going to be scared. It's a hammer, but it's not going to change you, not for life. You need a greater truth a greater truth than all the promises that you've heard that have enticed you into building your lives on these things. You need a greater truth that's going to melt you. That's going to justify you. That's what you need. You need a greater truth that's going to rescue you from your self-pity. You need a greater truth that's going to rescue you from your self-centeredness. You need a greater truth that's going to allow you to detach from these things that you've trusted. Detach yourself from these promises. You need a greater truth that's going to lift you out of your selfishness and give you the power to turn away from yourself and turn towards others. Jesus says, you need a transforming, overwhelming knowledge of my love. That's what Moses and the prophets teach. That's what he's talking about. The Old Testament, we looked at the survey. There's not a single sermon, and for those of you who are visiting or new, we've gone through an entire summer and now into the fall looking at this, the whole of the Bible. And the thing is, I don't think there was ever one sermon, ever one lesson that we taught here that was exclusive of God's love for his people. That's what the Old Testament, that's what Moses and the prophets teach. We need that. We need to meditate on his love. We need to experience his love. That's going to pull us away from other loves in our lives, other things in our lives. How? Because other things we've said here are going to disintegrate you are going to cause you to go into isolation, make you lose yourself. It's why we scoff at other people and despise other people who are lower than us and even higher than us, right? We detest other people. We gossip. We fight. We're doing that because we want to feel right. We want to make right with ourselves. We want to justify ourselves. We're trying to save ourselves. If you're doing that right now, you're probably experiencing some of that deterioration, some of that disintegration and isolation and you continue down that path, it's going to spiral you downward and crescendo you into eternity. Jesus says you need an ultimate righteousness, an ultimate justification, and that's found only in his love and his grace. You want to know my love? You want to know Christ's love? 
you need to see why he died and why he rose again. Why Moses and the prophets? What do Moses and the prophets say? Prophets, they all said they're going to tell us what Jesus would experience on the cross. It's worse than eternity. It's worse than an eternity of hell because he took all the sum of his people's hells onto himself. On the cross, Jesus Christ experienced the disintegrating power of God's wrath, just pelting him, just pummeling him. On the cross, he's crying out for relief. He says, I am thirsty. And when he says, I am thirsty, he's not saying, oh, please get me a drink of water. He's talking about the cosmic thirst of being separated from his father because he was experiencing the consuming fire of the wrath of God. Isaiah chapter 53, one of the greatest prophets in the Bible says, Jesus Christ was disfigured, his body was torn, he was marred beyond recognition. In other words, his body was falling apart. He was disintegrating. On the cross, his body was disintegrating, broken apart, torn apart, falling apart, experiencing isolation. You want to talk about isolation? Jesus Christ experienced the ultimate chasm between God and man. In fact, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You have forgotten me. You've left me for dead. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. You want to know why he did it? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. You know what that means? Jesus Christ is the ultimate rich man. How do we, lesser rich men, right, pursuing things and pursuing to build our lives, the original question was how do we become like a Lazarus? humbled seeing God as our help. You have to look at the ultimate rich man who became the ultimate Lazarus for you. That's how it becomes personal. Lazarus was hungry. Lazarus had dogs licking his sores. Psalm chapter 22 is a prophecy, the prophets, about Jesus. And what does he say in Psalm uh, chapter 22? My tears have been my food. In other words, I'm hungry. I'm starving. My tears have been my food. Dogs have encircled me. He's the ultimate Lazarus. On the cross, he says, my God, my God, you've forsaken me. What is he saying? I am getting the fire of your wrath. I'm getting the isolation. So I'm getting the disintegration and the isolation, being separated wholly and fully from God. In other words, on the cross, Jesus Christ was suffering the ultimate hell, the ultimate chasm, the ultimate separation from God, and he did it for you. He did it for me. He did it for his people. And do you know he chose it? He chose all of our hells for us, for me. And you know, on top of that, Isaiah 53, one of the great prophets, says that he was satisfied in choosing that for us. His body's being torn apart, souls being ripped apart, the Trinity ripped apart at the seams on the cross because they were separated from each other. And yet, Jesus Christ, do you ever see him saying, Oh, self-pity. No one will ever understand what I'm going through. Do you ever see him crying out? No. It actually says, Hebrews chapter 13 says, it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, scorning its shame. 
You see that? Look at the beauty of the broken Jesus. Look at the love and the grace and the endurance and the patience and the compassion and the forgiving grace of our Lord Jesus. That means unless you know the depths of, your, of the suffering of Jesus, you have no idea what your worth is. To understand your worth, true worth, to understand how treasured you are, how valuable you are. You, you want purpose? You want meaning? To understand the true depths of that, you have to look at the suffering of Jesus and know that he did it for you. It's got to become personal for you. You see that? A lot of us say, well, I don't want to believe, and that sounds awfully mean of God. I, I just want to believe that God is just a God of love. You'll never get the depth of his love. You'll never get the depth of the love of an all-powerful Jesus. Why? Unless you see the cross. Because a God that's truly loving, a God that's truly powerful, who can be just, who must be just, you understand that if he's all-powerful and all-loving, he can be just and he must be just. In other words, otherwise, what happens? Evil wins. That means that God can't be loving. Not all loving. If, even one, if God lets even one sin go, I mean, why can't God just kind of let us go, right? If you, hey, God's a God of love, just lets us go. If God even lets one sin go, that means the possibility of evil still existing and persisting in our lives. Then it makes him not all loving. And if you can't eradicate evil, it makes, it makes him not all powerful. And it makes him not all just. That's why there has to be a hell you got to work that through in your philosophical brain. you got to work that through if you don't believe in hell. A God that is all-powerful, all-loving, all-just. That's why. That's why he had to send his son, Jesus, to the cross. It's where the love of Christ, the love of God, the justice of God meet. Because he loves you so much, he's not going to let you go. And yet he hates sin so much, he has to let Christ go. You understand? Otherwise, he would have to let us go. The only way that God can be just and loving is to make a way for his people to be redeemed. And so you have to see the depths of the suffering of Jesus. You have to see, almost envision, Jesus Christ on the cross, dying and suffering and saying, it was for you and you were worth it. And I'm satisfied by it. That love has to overwhelm even your desires to love other things, your desire to pursue other things. Jesus Christ saying, I went to hell, I went through hell, I went through millions of hells, all for you, only for you. My favorite book, Pride and Prejudice. Uh, what does Darcy say? You must allow me to tell you how ardently I admire you and love you. That's what he says. After all that he goes through to sacrifice for his love, you must allow me to tell you how ardently I admire and love you. This is God's love narrative for his people. You must allow him to tell you how ardently he admires and loves and treasures you. 
Let the love of Christ be your status. Today, beginning today, let his name be your identity. Let that be your name. You will have a name that lasts forever, strong enough, sufficient enough to birth you into eternity. Trust it. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, as we